ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Hannah Burner, and do I have a podcast recommendation for you? Crazy coincidence. It's my podcast, Burning in Hell. It's a mental health comedy podcast where I get my guests to cry. No, I'm just kidding. I don't do that. But you may know me from Bravo Summer House, my stand-up TikTok. Who knows? I talk to people you look up to about their insecurities, their demons, the things that keep them up at night. I just had Morgan Absher on from Two Hot Takes talking about how she created the hottest podcast out right now. I also had TikTok sensation Victoria Paris about what it's like coming out as bi and why she blocked everyone on the internet. Harry Jowsey's on talking about his new relationship. And I even had Sierra Miller from Summer House to talk about what it was really like filming in the Hamptons. Check out Burning in Hell, B-E-R-N-I-N-G. It's a pun on my last name. And I can't wait to take you to hell. What's that? Uh, taxi driver? Ah, yeah, cool. And, uh, shower head, big knife. Is that psycho? Okay. Dancing lady. Are, are those wolves? Dances with wolves? They kind of look more like foxes. Or a hedgehog. Okay, what's this? Uh, a radio, another wolf slash fox, and lots of people. Radio Fox Group, Radio Wolf Bunch, Radio Wolfgang, Radio Wolfgang emoji title, I love it, smiley love heart eyes, winky kiss. Hello, this is Radio with the, yeah, we're back on air, the girls are down, but we don't care, we're mobile now, we're everywhere, yeah, Radio with the, back on air. Imagine growing up under a drab, authoritarian dictatorship where all artistic expression is curbed by strict censorship laws. But then, imagine, just as you become an adult, the dictator dies, and you find yourself in the middle of the most avant-garde, radical explosion of artistic activity your city has ever seen. That's what happened to young artists in Madrid in 1975, just after Francisco Franco died. Filmmakers like Pedro Almodovar and bands like Alaska and Meccano burst onto the scene, transforming the dull provincial capital into the centre of a new movement, the Movida Madrilena. Magazines like Dathina and La Luna de Madrid quickly emerged to document the new atmosphere in the city, which couldn't have been more different to what life had been like under the dictatorship. My name is Susan Larson, and I'm a professor of Hispanic studies at the University of Kentucky. When you look at pictures and documentary footage of the time, it was a very gray, uniform period. Dressed in battle kit and steel helmets, these men are part of the well-equipped security apparatus which keeps one man in total command of a nation of 33 million people. The country is Spain, and the dictator, General Francisco Franco. 
Homosexuality was made a criminal uh, offense in 1954 in Spain. So you can imagine the just kind of self-censorship, oppressive environment that many Spaniards were living in. What future is there for this country which has remained firmly embedded in the past? If you were white, if you were Catholic, if you were in a traditional family, maybe you didn't uh, have too much trouble. But if you were not any of those things, the weight of the oppression and the censorship was really quite heavy. Franco was no joke. Even in 1975, he condemned people to the death penalty. My name is uh, Jose Tono Martinez. I'm a writer, a fiction writer and a poet. My three brothers, at one time or the other, they were detained by the police and seriously beaten. You were in a, in a bar taking a cup and, and they came and make us sing these songs, fascist songs, with a, with a gun. That's photographer Uke Lele. They say, if you don't sing, I will, I will kill you. So we were always uh, running in the street from these people. Still now I have uh, nightmares. But then we felt very strong because each day we were more and more and more people that didn't want these kind of things, no? Religious, proud and independent. It's among people like these that the seeds of opposition to Franco are nurtured and in the past few years have ripened. As teenagers living under Franco, Jose Tone Martinez and his friends protested through what they called jumps. A jump is, for instance, when you gather your friends and say, OK, we go to this small square and at 12 noon exactly, all of us that are there are going to start shouting against uh, the Franco regime, uh, distributing uh, illegal uh, propaganda or writing with the sprays, the graffitis, etc. It does take brave men and women to make any kind of civil protest in Spain. Those jumps, we only had like 15 minutes at most because immediately we know that the police were coming. That was very important to, to analyze the different small streets or alleys where we could escape from the police. A country with normal, peaceful opposition to the regime is not and will not be tolerated. They were going to come with their batons and hit you or horses and, well, it was a very terrifying scenario. Despite growing protests, it was only the death of Franco that finally brought the dictatorship to an end. In the Residencia Sanitaria La Paz de la Seguridad Social, El Madrid. We, we don't forget that day, November the 20th, 1975. Generalísimo de los ejércitos y jefe del Estado español. He had been like three months in, in the hospital with all kind of sufferings because, of course, the Franco regime, they wanted to keep him alive. And, of course, we all of us wanted to, wanted to see him die as soon as possible. Españoles. Franco. Ha muerto. My father, 
when he knew that Franco died, well, he, he woke up all, all of us, opened a bottle of champagne. And I remember a, a friend of us, also an old uh, Republican Democrat, coming in tears to our house uh, and toasting for democracy and for freedom. As the country transitioned to democracy, artists who'd grown up under censorship were suddenly allowed to express themselves freely and the world they created was the opposite of the bleak, grey Spain of the Franco years. Theirs was fun, kitsch, brightly coloured and euphoric. Spain's capital was undergoing a magical transformation. As Rolling Stone magazine said, Since the death of Franco, Madrid is having itself one ongoing coming-out party, the kind you have when the folks are away for the weekend. Only this time, the old man isn't coming back. The rest of Europe in the 50s, because they were already in democracy, they had time to be uh, bitniks or to be rockers. In the 60s, they had time to, to enjoy the pop music and rock music. But in Spain, because we had been secluded in one single generation, we had to be everything at the same time. The Movida was a countercultural movement that took place after the death of Francisco Franco that was really born in Madrid, but it spreads to other cities. It was really quite an extraordinary moment. People had just been waiting and waiting and waiting for this, for this dictator to pass away uh, so that they could explore all kinds of new options. It was a very celebratory and like euphoric tone. I think it was like an explosion of creativity, a contagious virus. The creativity was very contagious. We were a very young almost like children. It was the time that I ended the school. Everything was at, at the same time. The end of the school and the, the death of Franco, freedom was in the air. <laughs> we were coming from a scenario where the streets had been, in a sense, closed. Always maybe the police was going to be around or they were going to, to disturb you. Now the streets is ours, now we are going to be the owners of our destiny and now we are going to be mm, certainly not uh, in, in compliance with the law. The streets were, maybe as they are today, uh, full of people, but with the sensation that you could do anything you wanted. One time I went to the, the mayor of the city of Madrid and ask him to stop all the traffic in Madrid to make a picture in the fountain of Cibeles, the very middle of Madrid, no? And he said yes. He said yes. It's incredible. Now you can't believe it, no? Everything were possible. We were trying to look for something completely different and, and to erase 
this sort of ancient way of seeing things in our country. It was a movement that accepts all the people, all the ages, all the races, we think, and some kind of utopia. And we dream that it's possible to live in, in another way with freedom and creativity and happiness, with a dream that the art can change the world. At the heart of all of this were the zines. So cheap to make, they allowed for entirely independent editorial control. Easy to distribute, these were made by the people for the people with very few steps in between. Pre-internet, this was the simplest, most expressive direct form of media. They were the ideal mouthpiece for the Movida movement. The way of expressing ourselves was through, through magazines. Magazines were very important to spread the kind of message and the things that we wanted to do. Zines were absolutely essential because they kind of gave people in other artistic forms like graphic design, photography, writing, and even like philosophy. It really gave them a platform. They would be distributed on the street or in bars or at music shows. One of the most groundbreaking zines was La Luna de Madrid, whose first issues were printed by José Tono Martínez from his tiny apartment in the city centre. La Luna de Madrid was founded by a gang of uh, 15 guys. Really university students, very middle class and upper middle class for the most part. It grew incredibly quickly from being something that a group of friends would just distribute at, at shows. They kind of became the movida, and people would go to them to figure out where to go and how to dress even, and what was going on. The content was really quite extraordinary, quite radical. They were basically manifestos, they're full of manifestos written by the people involved. Wild use of contrasting color, utopian visions of this city that almost take on kind of a science fiction element to them. Surrealism and Dadaism and elements of the historical avant-garde from before the Spanish Civil War. There were also quite important philosophers who would kind of present new ideas about how to live and how to be and how to think about being Spanish after the death of Franco. So there was a desire to be very forward-looking, very futuristic, but they were combined with an almost nostalgic look to the past. You would find all kinds of um, editorials that were usually filled with lots of question marks, like, what should we do? Or what's going on here? There was a real do-it-yourself kind of attitude that would persuade others to pick up their cameras, for example. But there was also a kind of open call to anyone who wanted to participate in the publication itself that was very democratic and very energetic. Everybody can be an artist. That was one of our themes. You don't need to go to college. You don't need to go to schools. You don't need to go to any place. I didn't do the fine arts degree because at that time we, we thought that the university were in the street and we were the teachers. <laughs> Young Spanish people were using the zines to find out about art that wasn't yet being covered by more mainstream media. 
This is photographer Gorka de Duo, whose work had appeared in La Luna de Madrid, as well as earlier zines like Dethina. The fields that I'm talking about was uh, not the normal uh, big production, was more underground fields. All the, the magazine was a mix of uh, famous people and you don't know who is these people, totally new people. The names of the most important graphic designers and photographers, people who are important in Spain now, they almost all inevitably got their start in La Luna de Madrid and other zines. Pedro Almodovar was a contributor to every magazine writing a column. At the time, he was not a famous filmmaker, but he was contributing with a column to present his perspective. He kind of took on the persona of someone named Patti Difusa, who was an extraordinarily sexually open character who was basically in the street looking for trouble and just seeing what came by. And it was an interesting mix between photography and oftentimes of Almodovar himself dressed up in, in different, quite provocative uh, guises, you could say. These cultural forms were a way for people to envision what a very open, multicultural, very lively, post-Franco city would look like. This new openness about sex and homosexuality was one of the signs of how fast Spain was changing. Same-sex relations had been legalized in 1979, and Pedro Almodovar was one of the Movida's many openly gay artists. The zines went further, calling for the age of consent to be abolished and for the legalization of all recreational drugs. There was this idea that we had to try it all. We had to look for different experiences. We wanted to experiment not only in the arts, but also in our bodies. And I remember those days and those nights as very crazy ones. We were very social. We liked very much to be together. We didn't have uh, Facebook or Instagram. We, We didn't have nothing of that. It was a culture tied to the bars, tied to to, to being in the bar, smoking, drinking, seeing people. I remember going out to the streets and embracing the streets like you were embracing also the people. You feel that the city is is like you. In the in the magazine was a, a, a mixture of working hard because of course we had to produce a monthly magazine, but at the same time it was like a big party. I remember uh, uh, people going there to, with with uh, all kind of legal and illegal substances to discuss all kind of matters about the arts, the architecture, the literature, the music, everything. Uh, All uh, our life was was a party. The Movida artists were breaking all kinds of taboos, but there was one topic everyone seemed to be shying away from. When you look at the art of the time and listen to the music of the time, there's really very little mention at all of the Franco regime and Franco himself. The Movida was, uh, was a rather escapist 
way of dealing with that immediate post-Franco period. They did not want to be brought down by thinking about the gray, somber uh, Franco years. This is pretty much what the whole of Spain was doing in the years after Franco died, pretending that the dictatorship had never happened. It was actually official policy. The transition from dictatorship to democracy in Spain uh, it's seen as a model of how to go from a fascist dictatorship to a very open, democratic uh, system. But to make that transition, Spaniards kind of agreed, it's called the, the El Pacto del, del Olvido, they agreed um, not to look too carefully into the workings of the Francoist regime. The people who had control uh, economically and politically during the Franco regime basically uh, still had control. And so the transition was made at a cost. Gorka experienced this at first hand when he did a photo shoot with Alaska and her band. He chose to pose them in front of one of the most controversial sites in Madrid, the cemetery where Hitler's soldiers, who had fought on Franco's side during the Spanish Civil War, were buried. This was a place very emblematic. For me, represent uh, the cemetery was Franco, the years we was living with Franco. And I put the new generation. When I take these pictures and I show to some friends, he say, hey, you are crazy. You don't can't show this now. <laughs> this is very dangerous. So I don't feel freedom because it was no real freedom. Forget the past. Don't talk about uh, Franco and don't talk nothing about politics. We make collective amnesia. The new generation come after our generations without past, without history. And the only story they have is the story from the Movida, all very a big party and very freedom, but it's not reality. There were many people that were uh, killed, particularly during the during the 40s, and they didn't receive a proper burial. It has a psychological impact, certainly. Not so much the children, but the grandchildren of people who lived in the Spanish Civil War and lived through the Franco period are now demanding to go back and look for answers and more accountability. Nowadays, when people look back at the cultural movement that was the Movida, either people say it was a wonderful, youthful, brief experiment that didn't last very long, and it's received a lot of criticism for being apolitical. I don't side with that side of the story. I think that a lot of what was going on, especially in the early Movida, was um, revolutionary. Uh, it was quite brave for people to look for new political, sexual identities of the time and actually go out into the street and make them visible. It just opened the door for other people to create a more inclusive and open and democratic city. We were putting over the table uh, discussions, certainly in our country, were completely uh, new 
and uh, were a contribution to, to the changes that we have seen in our country even in these days. How gay marriage, for instance, was accepted certainly is related to the normality of these, those changes debated and established 30 years ago. Groundbreaking as they had been, by the mid-1980s, zines like La Luna were beginning to lose their radical edge. The zine had a lightning-fast commodification process. They started in 1982, and by 1988, they were including advertisements for um, high-brand uh, liquor and, and camel cigarettes. It kind of caught the eye of the municipal government. La Luna de Madrid and some of the other zines of the time started to be supported by the socialist government. And they actually start to talk about how, how radical can you be when you're being subventioned by your, your father. They, they themselves really admit that it kind of took some of the revolutionary guts out of the zines and out of the movida itself. The movida was being used by the politicians. We didn't like and, and we stopped. You know, it was featured in Rolling Stone. The movida was featured in the New York Times. Tourists started to go to Madrid in order to see the movida. And you can see stores that are actually selling things for tourists, making references to the movida. And it's kind of sad, actually, <laughs> to see that happening and also kind of inevitable. A decade after Franco's death, the high that Madrid had been on since the end of the dictatorship was beginning to wear off. Uca looks back on the era with mixed emotions. There are two feelings, one of freedom and creativity and a very interesting moment to live, but also another memory, very dark and very sad. We experimented with everything. We are so young that many people over-experimented with drugs. These memories I don't like very much. The amount and the level of the recreational drug use in Madrid was very intense compared to what was going on in other cities. The um, impact of heroin was uh, quite devastating. Some of the most important and kind of high-profile artists of the time died young, and it would uh, kind of would set almost a tragic tone to the movida. And one of the things that really kind of brought it to an end. We had a lot of casualties. Actually, our generation is full of of, of dead people. Uh, because of drugs, because of accidents. Of course, uh, later when, when AIDS appeared, it was a cocktail, an explosive cocktail. Many of my friends uh, died, yeah, in this time in Madrid, or have a, a serious problem with, uh, with uh, drugs. Uh, me too. I decided to leave Madrid in the 80s for. I live in Berlin now. For surviving, I need to, to go out of Madrid. I left Madrid at the end of 1987. If I go back to those years, I have this clear impression that I was tired. I had been like almost, let's say, 10 years conducting uh, this, this, this kind of, of life. You cannot prolong that crazy way of living and doing things forever. The party had to finish because if not, in the end, the party was going to finish with us.
We are trying to change the scene, the cultural scene in our country. We want it to be like more modern. I don't know if in the end we accomplished that, but uh, well, what I can tell you is that we had a very nice and fun time <laughs> and, and, and we enjoy a lot our days and nights of the late uh, 70s and 80s. So the movida was, it disappeared. Only the politicians sometimes want to profit from it. They all want to say the creators of, of the movida, and it's not real. It's a movement from the street and from the people. I, I remember with a lot of love uh, that, that time. Although it left many disenchanted, there's no doubt that Movida tore up the rule book on what it means to be Spanish. And the zines, with their bold, hallucinatory colours and outrageous manifestos, perfectly encapsulated the attitude of Madrid's most rebellious generation. Superbooks was brought to you by the team at Radio Wolfgang, authored by myself, David Owen, and featuring Susan Larson, Jose Tone Martinez, Uka Lele, and Gorka de Duo. Thank you to all our contributors. Executive produced by Ellie DiMartino and Harry Watson. Produced and edited by Olivia Humphreys. Sound designed by Ivor Manley. Assistant produced by Claire Crofton. That was the last episode of the current series of Superbooks. Series two will be coming soon. Thank you for listening. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Unless you've been living under a rock, you may have noticed that the world is burning down around you. So when the headlines get to be too much, there's no better way to escape than into the past. I'm Liv Albert, and I host the podcast, Let's Talk About Myths, Baby. Every week, I retell stories from ancient Greece that will make you laugh, squirm, maybe even cry. Regardless, they're certain to make you fall in love with the ancient world. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is available wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>